Hey guys, this is Rohan and thanks so much for joining me. My guest today is David Rubenstein, who is a co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, which is a private equity firm with over $260 billion in assets under management. David has served as the Deputy Assistant Domestic Policy Advisor to Jimmy Carter during his presidency. He has also practiced law in both New York and DC. David is chairman of the boards of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, the Council on Foreign Relations, the National Gallery of Art, and the Economic Club of Washington. He is a fellow of the Harvard Corporation and a trustee of the World Economic Forum and holds a variety of other board seats. David is an original signer of the Giving Pledge. He is also the host of the David Rubenstein Show and Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein. He's also the author of The American Story, How to Lead, and most notably and recently, The American Experiment. He is a 1970 graduate of Duke University and a 1973 graduate of the University of Chicago Law School. We had a great discussion talking about his early career and how he built one of the largest private equity firms in the world, his routines and habits throughout his life, his latest book and his philanthropy work, and we talked about the global economy, America, and geopolitics. For those of you who enjoy a wide array of topics, this was a great discussion. Thanks again for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the conversation with David. David, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure to be here. Uh, so I wanted to kind of kick off this discussion with uh, you kind of telling the story of getting into the University of Chicago Law School and uh, the $50 payment that almost uh, you know, had you negate the, the scholarship. Well, I went to undergrad at Duke, and uh, I applied to as many law schools as I could, and I uh, got into all the law schools, but the one that gave me the biggest scholarship was the University of Chicago. They had a full tuition scholarship program, and I guess to encourage people from the East Coast or West Coast to go to the Midwest. And so I won it. Um, and so I decided I would go there and uh, I sent in the deposit that I thought I was supposed to send in. There was a deposit request for $50 that was to reserve your law school dorm. And at the time, I didn't have an extra $50 hanging around. So I figured I'll send the $50 into the law school dorm people and they'll tell the law school I'm coming. Otherwise, why would I need a law school dorm if it wasn't coming? So when I showed up the first day, they said, well, we gave your scholarship away because you never sent the $50 in. We didn't think you were coming. I said, well, I gave $50 to the law school dorm people. And they said, well, that's a different part of the university. We don't manage it. We don't know anything about it. And I started to say, well, geez, should I jump out the window? Should I cry? What am I going to do? My law school scholarship is gone. Finally, either because they didn't want me to commit suicide or something, I, they, they, um, they came up and said, okay, we'll give you the scholarship. So I, and, and thanks for that. I've given them about uh, now about $50 million in scholarship money for law school students. So it probably is a good investment by them. Uh, yeah, I would say that's a good ROI for them. Uh, and so you got into this prestigious law school, but you know you came from more humble beginnings. Uh, I wonder if there's just any illustrative examples from early in your childhood, maybe in the middle school or high school days, that um, you know kind of defined your your childhood or your work ethic or things like that. Well, I was not a brilliant person. I was reasonably intelligent, not brilliant. I wasn't a great athlete. I was mediocre athlete. I wasn't particularly handsome. I wasn't particularly charming. I wasn't wealthy. So I had, you know, reasonable um, ambition, but nothing beyond the ambition. And I came from very modest circumstances. My parents were blue collar workers. So um, I grew up in a uh, kind of segregated uh, area, but was very segregated by, by religion. It was very all Jewish. And I didn't really know a lot of people that weren't Jewish. And I didn't know a lot of people that had money because we were all kind of blue collar people. But, um, you know, I, I managed to get, have a happy childhood. I don't have any regrets about it. I, you kind of accept the situation you find yourself in. 
when you when you're growing up and no regrets about it. I wish I had been a smarter person. I wish I'd been a better athlete. I wish I'd been better looking. I wish I'd been more charming. But, you know, what can you do? You, you have what you have. Yeah. Um, but all of that, you know, kind of got you to the point where I think at 27 years old or so, I read that you were the domestic uh, deputy advisor uh, under Jimmy Carter. Um, and I know at the time there was a magazine article that came out that said uh, David Rubenstein, you know, is the second one to show up at the White House after Jimmy Carter and the last one to leave at 2 a.m. And uh, your dinner was from vending machines, right. if I recall correctly. I wonder if I preface all that to say if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, what was your life like working in the White House? Well, I had only been interested in government and service, uh, government and public service. I didn't have any money. I didn't aspire to money, didn't have money. In those days, there were no hedge funds, private equity funds. People weren't becoming billionaires and so forth. If you wanted to go into business, you typically work in your father's company or or maybe you joined a big company like IBM or something. But generally, I wasn't interested in make, making money or business. I was interested only in government and politics. So I got lucky. I worked in the campaign. Carter won. I became the deputy domestic policy advisor at the age of 27 and with an office in the West Wing. I obviously wasn't qualified to be three years out of law school advising the president of the United States, but there were a lot of young people in that White House who didn't seem they were that much better than me. So I, I loved the job and I didn't take, basically take any time off. I wasn't married at the time, no kids or anything like that. So I could work around the clock and I did. I would, there was no uh, dining facilities at the White House in the evenings because most people went home. So I had to eat in the vending machines. And, you know, so the vending machine food, I famously said, was underrated. It wasn't that bad, actually. And so I would go in the vending machines for dinner and come back and have a night crew do my work at night on the secretarial kind of things. And be ready for the next day. So I generally would come in at seven and leave it around 11. You know, I didn't find it boring. I found it exciting. You know, the president of the United States calling you up and, you know, you get to answer him and it was fun. Were there any kind of, um, or what were the major kind of takeaways, learnings, foundational principles that you got drilled into at that early age working in the White House? One, uh, you should have more experienced people than me working in the White House. Uh, two, uh, people tell you how great you are, how brilliant you are, and you've got to discount all of that because they're just fine to flatter you. Uh, three, uh, you've got to really make certain that you know what you're doing, because if you make a mistake, it's going to be known all over the world relatively quickly. Uh, and then if I say four is to uh, try to enjoy the moment, because you're never probably going to have as enjoyable a time as working in the White House as a young man advising the president of the United States. Those kind of things don't come along a lot. So take some time to so-called smell the roses because you're, you're doing something that's very unique and probably in the rest of your life, you're never going to have anything quite as enjoyable or quite as exciting as doing that. I see. And so after uh, the White House, you know, you, uh, you kind of co-founded Carlisle along with a couple partners. Um, I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about, you know, how you met and then determined that these were the right partners for you, how you created the idea of Carlisle. And then kind of in that first year, what did you guys do and focus on? Well, I practiced law when I left the White House because that's all I knew how to do. I wasn't a really good lawyer and I didn't like it. So if you don't like what you're doing and you're not very good at it, you probably should do something else. So I ultimately decided to try to get into the investment world because I thought it seemed more exciting and maybe be more lucrative even than practicing law. And I just thought I would try something different. So I started, started the first private equity firm or buyout firm in Washington. I didn't have any experience, so people didn't take me seriously or worry about it too much that I was going to be successful. I did recruit a few people, persuading them somehow that, that we would raise money and that they could make a fair amount of money by doing buyouts and things like that. And I, so I recruited a guy from MCI, who was CFO there, a senior treasury kind of person from uh, Marriott. 
And then we had another Marriott version. And then we started. We had $5 million to start. And it uh, wasn't that much, but uh, that was 1987. We ultimately grew it to be one of the larger private equity firms in the world. And I know you focus mainly on kind of fundraising, recruiting, so on and so forth. Are there any interesting early stories that you had of kind of going through raising capital and raising funds? Well, when I first went out, I didn't have a track record, so people weren't very, you know, interested. And, you know, I remember one person I went to see in Geneva, I was told was a wealthy individual. And I went every time I was in Geneva, I would go there and every time he would turn me down, turn me down. After nine times, he said, look, I'm tired of seeing you already. Don't you get the picture? I'm not interested. You don't have a track record. I said, well, couldn't you just give me a chance to find that he gave me a little money and gave me a chance mostly so he wouldn't have to see me again. And then he later turned out to be one of our biggest investors ever, putting in probably over a billion dollars in the end, uh, which is a lot for an individual in our firm. So, um, you know, you have to just be persistent when you're fundraising and basically not take no personally. In terms of, um, you know, the persistence and then ultimately creating this great track record, um, what have you seen kind of younger private equity managers screw up as it relates to the actual business fundraising? Well, on fundraising, uh, I... Today, it's a little bit different than it used to be, and we can do much more of it today by Zoom. In the old days, you had to actually physically show up for everything. But I'd say people tend today to go out and raise funds uh, with very modest track records. I didn't have much of one either. And then they go out and invest that fund. Before there is a track record, um, they can raise another fund. And in the old days, you used to have to you know, have some track record before you go out and raise another fund. But today, implied values are generally enough to help you get a second fund on, on the market. There's a lot of capital out there. So if you're persistent, you know, you can probably raise a fund today. It's not like there's a lack of capital looking for attractive things to do. When the economy slows down at some point and money becomes tighter, I suspect it'll be harder to raise money. Right now, it's not that difficult. As you kind of went throughout the process of raising additional funds, um, you know, continuing to have good success in the, the buyouts and so on and so forth, were there any inflection points along the way that you had maybe during your late 30s or 40s where you sat and said to yourself, you know, wow, we're building something really special here? As you mentioned earlier, you know, it's now one of the largest private equity firms in the world with roughly $260 billion under management. Well, we had a lot of stumbles in the beginning, and I always wondered whether we would make it or not. And so I, my mother had said to me, I didn't know much about business, so keep your law license in case you have to fall back on that. So I, I'm still a member of the D.C. Bar just in case I have something to fall back on. But I, I you know, worried, worried at times whether we'd make it or not. But then ultimately, when I kind of felt we were raising enough money and we were becoming reasonably well-known and we were recruiting prominent people to join us like Jim Baker, Frank Carlucci, George Herbert Walker Bush, John Major, we got to be pretty well-known. And and then the track record became everything. And as our track record improved, we could raise more and more money and make the firm more global than it had been before. How have you thought about, you know, today kind of uh, a significant portion of the private equity dollars are invested in the U.S. And, you know, there's this uh, other capital and other opportunities in emerging markets. I know Carlisle has become more global over time. How have you just kind of seen that push and how do you think it'll continue on in the future? Two thirds of all private equity dollars are still invested in so-called developed markets. So only a third is in the part of the world that has a bigger population. Uh, for a long time, people thought emerging markets would emerge. Um, and really, they've been disappointing to people in terms of rates of return. The risk reward uh, for emerging markets is probably not as good as the risk reward for developed markets. On the other hand, as a diversification play, it's probably worth doing. But some markets have disappointed. I would say China turned out to be great. India is looking like it's going to be really attractive. 
Russia turned out to be challenging, let's say. And Brazil has had its ups and downs and currency related issues make it very difficult to make a profit there. Some parts of the, of the Middle East are just not uh, filled up with a lot of deals. There aren't that many things to buy in the Middle East. Africa has been very challenging. So you can always talk about some deals that worked out in any given region. But on the whole, developed market private equity is much easier to do. And to get rates of return that are consistent with what investors want, it's easier in the developed markets. And I know kind of shifting towards the U.S., Carlisle has about um, 19 billion or so of real estate under management split across, uh, you know, opportunistic and core plus deals. Um, I'm just curious, kind of what do you think of both the residential and commercial real estate sectors today in the U.S.? Well, it depends on what um, part of the country, for one thing. But I would say real estate, as you know, you're in the real estate world, is, a, is related very directly to interest rates. So interest rates have been relatively benign or, or almost zero. So at this point, you can borrow a fair amount of money relatively easily, and that's been very helpful to the real estate market. We know that uh, the real estate, that interest rates are going to go up at some point in the next year or so, and so that probably will take some of the valuations down a bit, I'd be my guess. But the most important thing you have to remember about real estate, I guess, is the United States is still a growing country. When I was growing up, we had roughly 190 million people in the United States when I was a boy, something like that, 170, 190 million. We've got 330 million people. So more and more people, uh, more and more people need real estate, places to live and residential and so forth. Residential is attractive, but as you probably know, uh, your generation and my children's generation, which is roughly your generation, are not as hung up on owning a house as having a house they can live in as on a rental property. Yeah, my generation and my parents' generation thought, thought that the key to success was owning your home and getting a mortgage to pay it off and so forth. A lot of people today are moving around a lot. They don't want to own real estate. So that's a big change. Secondly, um, I, I think commercial real estate has a challenge in that Zoom may make it necessary to people to think that they're not going to come into the office every day, five days a week. And so a lot of commercial real estate uh, 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 landlords are looking at whether or not they need as much space as they did before to house various companies. And companies are looking at how much space they really need. So, you know, the original view was that maybe people will come back to work and you'd have to get more distance between them. But it turns out that the more likely view is that people will come into work three days a week and maybe do what's called hoteling. We don't have an office. You kind of find out what's available and therefore you don't need to have as many big offices as before. So it's a little bit unclear how it's going to work out. Right, right. And I do want to talk a lot about kind of um, the economy and the state of America. But before we kind of go down that, I wanted to uh, take a step and kind of talk a little bit about some of the routines and habits that you've cultivated over time. Um, and so I know you've kind of admitted uh, that you're a workaholic. Uh, I'm just wondering if you can walk us through kind of, uh, you know, a typical or, or general day um, as it relates to kind of the work you do every day. Yeah, I uh, have always felt I wasn't as smart as I would like to be. And therefore, if I worked harder, I could compensate for not being you know, a genius or something. So I, I am pretty committed to working long hours. And I now try to juggle many different things from my, from Carlisle, from my personal family office, my nonprofits, my books and, you know, TV things. So I'm juggling a lot, but I enjoy everything I'm doing. On a typical day, I, you know, I try to get up at six o'clock and say to myself, all right, am I going to exercise this morning? And, and about five minutes later, I conclude I don't have time. So I get rid of that very quickly. And then uh, get ready to either go to an office or go to a, a meeting or do a Zoom call. And I'll do many Zoom calls during the days relating to nonprofit organizations or 
the things that I'm involved with in philanthropy and then business related things. And so it goes through the day. And, uh, you know, today is a typical day. I've done, uh, this is my fourth podcast today, to be honest, not that this isn't the most important thing I'm doing right now, but uh, it, it is, it is uh, the fourth one I've done today. And I've also uh, chaired a couple nonprofit committee meetings and, and so forth today. And then tonight I'm going to make a speech where I'm going to give an award to the Queen of England. Uh, she won't be there, but she's sent her ambassador to accept it. In, and uh, it's an award named after Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The Chief Justice of the United States will be there. We'll do it at the Library of Congress. So I've been preparing all day to talk about the Queen of England and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so I always try to prepare what I'm going to say in advance. And this coming uh, weekend is the weekend of the Kennedy Center Honors, which you may have seen on TV. This is what we do once a year at the Kennedy Center. I've been the chair for the last 10 years, and this is our big weekend. The president will come and we'll go to the White House. We'll have five honorees. So I have to make, I think, 13 different sets of remarks. And the trick is to not repeat yourself. So I've been preparing what I'm going to say 13 times, but making sure that I don't repeat the jokes over and over again. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly honored I get to be, uh, you know, talking with you on the same day that you're giving the Queen of England uh, an award. Uh, and kind of what do typical Saturdays and Sundays look like for you? Maybe one as you were building Carlisle in the early days. And then what do those kind of look like now? Well, on Saturdays and Sundays, when I was building Carlisle, my kids were, were younger and they were at home. So I tended to not travel as much on weekends as I would do. I, uh, I would probably tend to travel for four or five days at a time, leave on a Sunday night, come back maybe on a Friday night. Uh, weekends, I would spend more time with my children than I would during the week. But obviously, during the weekends, I would try to catch up because, as you know, uh, correspondence uh, piles up, emails pile up. And so I try to you know catch up and, and then prepare for the next week. I always like to be prepared. If I'm doing an interview, I'm making a speech, I actually like to prepare for it so I look like I know what I'm talking about. In many cases, I hope I actually do know what I'm talking about. So that's what it is. It's not, I generally am not a big relaxer, so I wouldn't lounge around and just do nothing uh, over a weekend, though I would read books and try to prepare for interviews I might do about those books. That's generally how it worked. Then now it's a little bit different because today my kids are not in the home. They're at, they're all grown and so forth. So I pretty much am working around the clock on weekends um, and always praying that I have some time to exercise, but never quite getting there. And I know you're an avid reader. I'm just wondering, like the process by which you read. Do you read, you know, books from front to back? How do you choose books? Do you highlight? Uh, curious to hear that. I've learned over the years that when you highlight the books, it doesn't. It takes a lot of time to do it, and in the end, you, you, you it's a crutch that you may not really use. I go back and look at books I've read many years ago, and every page is underlined, and every word seems to be underlined. And I don't know if it's that productive. So now, what I do is I read hard copies. I don't like to read online. I read hard copies. I try to read the entire book and then kind of go back and think about what I've learned. And then usually I'm preparing for an interview. So I go back and prepare questions out of the book. Uh, some books, I'm reading a book now that's, you know, 800 pages. And when you start an 800 page book, uh, you kind of say, geez, do I really have the time to go through an 800 page story? So I will pick and choose the parts I think are most interesting. And if I don't get to the entire book, at least I've read the most important parts. And do you have a kind of set time, you know, reading in the morning, reading at night, just reading whenever you can find time during the day? Um, I generally do the best reading at, at night or and uh, when, I'm, when I'm on airplanes. Um, what I need to do is to read a book and think through it. I have to have no diversions, nobody calling me, no emails that I have to respond to. So generally it's after business hours uh, or on weekends when I, I may have, you know, not business hour kind of things I have to worry about. 
And I know you knew, uh, read, I think it was like six newspapers a day or something. Right. What are those newspapers that you read every day? I read every day. Um, and I don't read them online. I try to buy them. In some cases, when I'm traveling, it's hard to find some. It's amazing how many cities in the United States no longer sell newspapers. I'll go to some major cities and I, you know, the city you're in now, I, I had a hard time when I was there recently trying to find a place that actually had a newspaper. Um, but I read the New York Times, the New York Post, the Financial Times, uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, the Washington Post. And from time to time, I might read uh, a, a uh, my hometown paper, the Baltimore Sun. Great. And I wanted to switch gears now and talk a little bit about, um, you know, your latest book, The American Experiment, and then a little bit about what you're doing with uh, patriotic philanthropy. And so uh, in The American Experiment, you know, you've done these interviews with historians, musicians, athletes, so on and so forth, other notable people. Um, and you kind of talk about this genetic picture uh, of the country and why it succeeded so far. Um, I thought the title of the book was really interesting. I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about how you chose the title. Well, the country is an experiment because uh, there had never been a case before in, in human history where people came together and said, let's create a new country. And by the way, let's make it a representative democracy. Usually when a country is being formed, somebody had won a military battle and he, as the leader of the military uh, group, would, would take over and, and, and run the country as an autocrat, make himself a member of the quote, royal family at some point. But here we basically said we didn't want a king. We didn't want an autocrat. So we came together and created a republic. And this, the book is about how we created this concept of uh, a representative democracy as an experiment because people didn't think it would work very well. And this experiment has now been going on for 250 years. We obviously have challenges. We've had challenges from the beginning, uh, slavery being the biggest challenge, but we still have challenges. But this experiment that's worked reasonably well compared to every other uh, experiment like this that's gone on around the world. In the introduction of the book, you kind of... Um lay out, uh, you know, the survey that was done uh, of people and kind of what they view as the biggest um, factors and, and what they prioritize in America. And the number one was uh, freedom of speech, which was, you know, uh, the most fundamental, uh, important thing to Americans. And how do you think about freedom of speech today in the context of, um, you know, kind of social media fact checking and cancel culture and things like that? Well, I think everybody wants to have uh, the freedom to say whatever they want. They may not want everybody else to have the freedom to say what somebody else wants. So everybody <laughs> likes to make able to say that, yes, I want to be able to say what I want. I don't want anybody to censor me. I don't want anybody to criticize me, but they don't really sometimes have the same view that other people should be able to have the same freedom. So uh, the right to a free speech is very important. Obviously uh, in my book, I pointed out that in a survey, 65% of Americans thought that was the most important right in our country. I was surprising to me. I would have thought other things would be more important, but that's very important to people. Um, Clearly, we have a, a, a thing where certain people are not um, are supposed to say some politically incorrect things, and they do, they get in trouble. And so I've been dealing with some of those issues uh, lately where some people in universities I've been involved with or other things I'm involved with, people are invited to speak, and they are saying things that are not politically correct in the view of some people, and a lot of people don't want them to speak. Uh Two questions. So one, um, you just mentioned that you were surprised freedom of speech was the number one thing. What was your assumption on how people would kind of, um, you know, respond to the survey? I would have said that the most important uh, right or freedom is, uh, you know, the freedom uh, um, to um, pursue life the way you want to do it, pursue happiness without government interfering with your day-to-day -day life. And then the right to vote, would be very important to me. I would have thought that had been a higher priority. 
but generally the country is premised on the concept that there is a certain basic equality, that people are treated with equal rights, equal opportunities. Now, clearly, we don't really have that, but that concept is the one that I would have thought most people would aspire to kind of uh, say is the most important thing about America, the belief, rightly or wrongly, that we have the right to be equal and equal in treatment, equal in opportunity. I would have said that's probably the most important thing. I see. And uh, the second thing I wanted to ask was um, this piece that also you just mentioned of, you know, people being asked to, you know, they said something wrong and now they don't want them speaking at the university anymore. Um, do you have a view? Like, is this good? Is this bad? And if it's bad, how do we kind of fix this? It's hard to say things should be black and white. I am uh, involved in the University of Chicago board and I was a graduate law school at the University of Chicago, as I noted earlier. And um, there, uh, the president, the previous president, Bob Zimmer, was a big believer in the right to free speech. And university did a, a lot of good work in kind of letting people say what they want to say. Other universities have shut people down if they say things that are not politically correct. Clearly, you can't say anything. You can't shout fire in a, in a crowded movie theater, as the old uh, saying goes. But I think within reason, unless you're spewing complete hate or you're trying to encourage people to kill or harm other people, you should be able to say pretty much what you want. But clearly, there's some things that are beyond the pale. To go uh, on television and say you think that Adolf Hitler was a wonderful man and did some great things, I think is probably beyond the pale. Right, right. As people read the book, what are some of the um, most important things that you want them to kind of take away from reading it? That the country is an, still an ongoing experiment. We have lots of challenges. We've had lots of stress tests, the Civil War being the biggest stress test. But obviously, the events of uh, the most recent presidential election, the events of January 6th, were also a stress test. That the country has some unique qualities, and I call them genes. Just like you and I have genes in our body we get from our parents, our country has certain genes that make our country different than other, any other country. So if you were to grow up in Mongolia, France, Sweden, uh, Denmark, you'll have certain genes that are part of your, your fabric, and you believe in certain things. We have certain genes in this country. They are the, re the right to the belief in equality, equal opportunity, the right to vote, uh, free speech, uh, uh, separation of powers. The military should be controlled by the, by the, uh, the civilian uh, part of uh, society, uh, things like that, freedom of religion. These are fundamental things in our country that I think almost everybody believes in, and they're part of our core. And I'd like people to think about what are the things that make America so unique. And one of those I did describe at the end is, is uh, the belief in the American dream. There's a belief in this country historically that if you work hard, merit will ultimately will out and you can work up your way to be at the top of society and you can be president of the United States. Uh, many people in the United States don't believe that so much anymore, but immigrants tend to. We have 47 million immigrants in this country and they came here because in part they believe in the American dream. Working hard will get you to the top of society. We have a lot of people in our society who born with lots of problems and challenges that make it difficult for them to believe they can rise up, though obviously some do. The immigrant piece is interesting because um, I think that's embedded within people, right? They come here to the country with that hope. And then people whose parents were immigrants, uh, like myself, then also have seen that and have that hope and, you know, have lived that in certain cases. So um, do you have any ideas on how we can kind of like restore that faith of the American dream in the majority or the portion of the population that doesn't believe it's there? Well, if I did, I would have gone to Iowa, New Hampshire, probably a couple of years ago and told everybody how to do it. So there's no easy answer. I think the key to um, people feeling 
uh, that they can rise up is uh, a feeling that the government will not block them from doing so and may encourage them by providing certain programs and freedoms. But the most important thing of all is education. Uh, you can't really rise up without a good education. You may get lucky. Somebody might drop out of high school and turn out to be a, a good business person, but that's rare. Generally, education is the key. And uh, I, I think that we, we fail large parts of our population by not educating them well. 14% uh, of our adult population is functionally illiterate, which means they can't read past the fourth grade level. If you can't read at all, you have a pretty good chance of winding up in the federal prison system or juvenile delinquency system. You have a pretty good chance of earning a very modest amount of money if you get a job at all. Uh, right now, we have a country that I would say is a tale of two cities. In my world, in your world, the private equity world, the real estate world, uh, COVID came and you know it changed the way we worked a bit, but people did make a lot of money and still are making a lot of money. If you work with your hands, you don't have an education, you don't have childcare at home, you don't have broad broadband at home, uh, you have a hard time. And many people now are suffering from this. And while we've always had an underclass in our country, I think it's growing. And now as you go in major cities in this country, um, the city I'm living in, Washington, you see enormous amounts of tents that are filled with homeless people. And, you know, it's a sad situation when a prosperous country like ours has so many people who are you know, determined to live in a homeless manner. It's not very encouraging for that they're going to do well in life. One of the things I've thought about, um, you know, not so much on the education side, but I certainly agree with that is, um, and, and other people have talked about this as well, but is the concept of a baby dividend where every child born in America gets X dollars in a low cost ETF. And now they have ownership in the country effectively you know, and that can't be taken out till you're 18 or 21 or whatever, uh, whatever age in the future. And it kind of teaches people, you know, okay, I have a stake in the country, in the financial future of the country. I begin to understand compound interest, so on and so forth. I'm wondering if, you know, based on your experience of Washington, if this has ever come up or been thrown around as an idea. I haven't really, well, people have talked about it from time to time, but it's not in the mainstream. And right now, given the fact that we're running multi-trillion dollar deficits and we've got $29 trillion of debt, a program like that wouldn't get very far in Congress because there's not enough money that is widely believed to be able to afford something like that. Um, so I, I, I think it's um, a sad situation, but there are many people are be born in poverty and they are not likely to escape poverty, but I'm not sure this kind of program would solve that uh, realistically. Yeah. You talk about education. If you were starting a school today, what would those parts of the cur curriculum be that you think kids need to be learning? Well, there's no doubt that reading is the essential part of education. So being able to read and, and, and understand what people are, are writing about and being able to uh, feel that reading is enjoyable and you learn from it, that's important. Uh, learning how to write is important. Not everybody's going to be Ernest Hemingway, but I think being able to communicate by writing is very important as well. Also, learning how to speak and communicate orally is very important. But also, I think you have to have certain basic mathematics skills or some understandings of history, certain understandings of the, the, the main language you're, you're involved with, if it's English, understand how that language really works. And then, you know, of course, um, having access to an, inability to an ability to use the Internet, which has essentially all the information in the world at your fingertips, is an important thing. I think young people you know, seem to get that pretty well now. I have a, uh, you know, one and a half year old grandson, and he seems to be able to figure out how to navigate the internet to some extent in ways I can't even do. Right. right. And now you've written a few books, um, you know, 
most notably, I think, around American history, obviously now the American Experiment, before that, uh, The American Story, um, which are great books to understand American history. In addition to those, what are some of the important books that you've you know recommended people to go out and read to get a deeper understanding of American history? Well, pick a book uh, that you're likely to be interested in and, and completing. If you want an encyclopedic book about America history, that's pretty good. It's uh, Jill Lepore's These Truths, which is the first encyclopedic history of the United States written by a woman. And she's a Harvard professor, and I interviewed her for this book. Um, and that's a very good overview. But depends on you know what you're interested in. Um, I like to read biographies. So I like to read biographies about presidents or leaders. So there's so many great books about Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or or, you know, other kinds of uh, leaders we've had in our country. So I think biographies are particularly appealing to me. But the most important thing is pick a subject that you want to read about. So it's not like it's force fed. If you want to read about it and you want to learn about it, you're more likely to finish the book. It's one thing to pick up a book. It's another thing to actually read it. And a lot of people don't buy books. A lot of people don't read books. Reading books is different than reading a newspaper or a tweet because it takes a lot of time to focus the brain to read a book. It takes hours and hours and hours and it trains you to kind of focus your brain in a way that reading tweets or reading things online just don't. Right. I think there's a um, an angel investor in um, Silicon Valley named Naval Ravikant, and I think he says something like, uh, you know, read what you love until you love reading or something like that, which is pretty much what you're saying. Yeah. Um, Patriotic philanthropy, philanthropy, I want to talk about. Can you talk a little bit about this um, and kind of what it's meant to you? Yeah. Now, philanthropy is derived, uh, that word, from an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. And it, at the time that the concept was uh, was derived, uh, people didn't think you wrote checks as a way of doing philanthropy. You helped other people with your time, your energy, your ideas. As we have move forward in society, people only measure philanthropy by the dollars you give away, which is unfortunate because other things are more valuable. And the time is more valuable than the money in many ways, because you can always make more money. You can't make more time. What I've tried to do is figure out what areas of philanthropy I could have an impact on. And I have many different ones that I'm interested in. Patriotic philanthropy gets a lot of attention because not that many people are doing it, relatively speaking. What I meant by that phrase is reminding people of the history and heritage of our country. So reminding people of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Thomas Jefferson, the good and the bad of them, and you know, restoring their homes or their monuments so that people will visit them and learn more about them on the theory that if we learn more about the past, we can avoid some of the mistakes of the past and actually have a better society in the future. So that's what I mean by patriotic philanthropy, giving back to the country in ways that remind people of the history and heritage, the good and the bad of our country. And you've restored monuments, you've preserved documents. I'm um, just curious, as you got into patriotic philanthropy, um, is there any outcomes or impacts that you weren't um, forecasting at the time of starting that have now come as a surprise to you? Well, you can be criticized for doing this. Uh, many people would say, well, why fix up monuments? Because some of these people are not so great. Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. George Washington was a slave owner. So why are you fixing up things to remind people of them? Um, you know, there's there. I understand that point. I fixed up Thomas Jefferson's home, the Jefferson Memorial, uh, James Madison's home, uh, Montpelier. He was a slave owner, too. So my perspective is that you have to learn the good and the bad. We shouldn't throw out the good just because some people did some things that are bad. If you're looking for the perfect person, you're probably not going to find that person. So everyone has their flaws. Obviously, slavery was a terrible thing. But I think some of these people that were slave owners did do some good things for the country. So that's my perspective. 
I think one framing of it also is that if we don't, if we wipe away those things, we'll never remember those, right? And we kind of need to remember well, those so we don't make the same mistakes in the future. Yeah, the famous Harvard uh, Spanish-born philosopher, historian George Santayana said, those people that don't remember history are condemned to relive it. So the theory of history is learning what went wrong and right in the past and try to avoid what went wrong and try to do again what went right. I want to uh, switch topics a little bit, talk a little bit about, um, you know, the economy, how you're kind of seeing things today. Um, you know, on one end in the U.S., we have challenges, federal deficit, record levels of debt, inflation. On the other end, we have people who own assets and have increased their wealth. Household debt as a percentage of income is relatively low. Um, how do you think about the global economy today? What are the risks of the economy? Um, and how are you guys kind of thinking about it, both personally and then, you know, from a Carlisle perspective as well? Well, the global economy has been in reasonably good shape for upper income people. Um, so wealthy people have done pretty well globally. The pandemic hasn't had the bad effects that many people thought it would have. So I um, you know, would say that uh, you know, we probably should expect that things will go down because people can't, you can't keep having the economy doing well. Probably interest rates will increase at some point in the next year. And I suspect that will take some of the stock market valuations down and probably make it more and more difficult to buy certain things like real estate. So I, I think, um, you know, the biggest factors in the economy today in the United States are these four. Number one, what are the interest rates going to be Are we are, and, and so forth? When are the changes going to occur? Uh, second, is the federal government going to provide more stimulus by the so-called Build Back Better program or not? Uh, third, what's the status of the virus? And is it going to come back? in some way, and are we going to be able to treat it? And then fourth, um, how are we going to convince people to come back to work, work in a regular way, get people to join the workforce, and to um, get our business back to some kind of normality? Uh, and that's a big challenge right now. A lot of people are finding hard times to, to get employees, and a lot of the employees who are in other existing jobs don't like them so much anymore, or they want to do something different. So getting the economy back to some kind of normal pattern is a, is a big challenge as well. The biggest overall challenge the global economy has, I think, is that, you know, there's an economy that's very wealthy and there's an economy that's not very wealthy. And can we ever figure out a way to get more of the wealth from the, the wealthy nations and the wealthy people to the people that don't have as much? It's a challenge that we haven't invented recently, but it's an ongoing challenge because people are much more sensitive to it than they were decades ago. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's kind of like, you know, people have more visibility and access to the upper echelons of wealth or, um, you know, is it something different? Because by all accounts, we're living better than we would have historically, but certainly income inequality is uh, pretty well, large today. A hundred years ago, we didn't know how exactly wealthy certain people were. So we didn't, we guessed that there were the, the JP Morgans were wealthy. We didn't really know the Rockefellers were wealthy. We didn't know how much. Now everybody who's wealthy is their net worth seems to be publicly available. Every uh, things that people own is publicly available, and people can do comparisons about how their life is compared to other people in this country and other countries. So there's much more access to information, and therefore there's a better opportunity to make a comparison with your situation and somebody else's situation. That that didn't exist 100 years ago or 50 years ago even. Well, one thing that, um, you know, I look at kind of as a, a long-term um, potential risk or, you know, challenge is just the aging population in the Western world. So, you know, we'll have these liabilities for Social Security and pensions, for example. 
How do you think about that? And are there any opportunities that entrepreneurs should potentially be taking advantage of there? Well, there's no doubt that um, we we have unfunded pension liabilities, and um, I don't know how they're all going to be funded. Uh, clearly, whenever there's a, a need for something, there's entrepreneurs will come in. There there should be ways to provide people with better financial security than they have, and the obviously investment professionals try to do that. But in the end, uh, we we there's only you can't make more money other than by printing money that's worthless. So we've got to figure out a way to increase the growth of the country or reduce spending a bit by the government or increase taxes a bit. There's no other way out other than inflating the economy, which isn't desirable. So we have uh, my generation is going to be retiring or has already retired. And it really, we don't have fully funded social security programs and we don't have fully funded state pension programs. So somehow we have to make up that gap and that's not clear how we're going to do it. It seems to me probably the biggest lever to pull is tax increases. Is that something that you think is most likely or how do you think about the levers that they'll ultimately pull? I don't know whether it's harder to increase taxes or to cut spending. It's a tough one. In Washington, D.C., we're not good at either. Um, (laughs) I suspect that probably it's the easiest thing in Washington is to cut taxes and to um, increase spending, but that doesn't help so much. So I think what we have to do is figure out a way to... um, you know, um, do, do a better job than we've done recently in uh, either increasing the revenue that we get into the country in some way or uh, cutting the guaranteed spending. Most of the problems we have in spending deal with two parts of it. 80%, maybe 85% of the budget is defense spending or uh, interest or entitlement, so-called Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and so forth. So that's where the, the big money is. And uh, it's hard to get rid of the interest expense, and it probably will be going up because interest rates are going up. We always want a strong military, and it's hard to cut people's entitlements when they're getting ready to retire and so forth. So no easy ways around this problem. Are there any um, economic indicators, reports, things that you read closely to get an understanding of the things that go on in the economy and the world? You have your research teams. Are there types specific data sources they're always looking at and gathering for you? You know, I don't think there's any secret thing that people read that nobody really knows about. And if only everybody read it, they would know more than everybody else. The Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, they cover the economy pretty well. There are other publications that are more specialized for given industries that you might be involved with. But generally, you know, reading the major newspapers is probably going to give you a pretty good feel for what's going on. Now, uh, at Carlisle, we have people that do economic analysis. I read economic analyses prepared by the Wall Street firms and so forth. But in the end, uh, I don't think there's a lot of big secrets out there. And then I want to touch on crypto real quick. I know that um, you've previously said, you know, the genie is out of the bottle on crypto. You couldn't really ban it in the U.S. anymore, uh, if that was even ever an option. Uh, Just more broadly, kind of what are your thoughts on crypto, particularly as it relates to, you know, creating this more decentralized financial system? Well, for centuries, if not millennia, um, gold provided a substitute for kind of paper currency or other kinds of things. And in recent years, we've kind of developed this new thing called cryptocurrency, which is in fact a substitute for dollar currencies or, or, or euro currencies or other kinds of paper currencies. And people are interested in this because one, um, they don't trust the dollar. For example, they think it might be inflated out of some of its value. Um, they also think that the government might do things to, with your dollars that they can't do with cryptocurrencies. So cryptocurrencies met a need. Now, the fact that people have made staggering sums of money by buying some of these cryptocurrencies just encourages more and more people to invest in them. And since you can, it's not that hard to start a cryptocurrency, 
you know, you can get one started and you can become a, a leader in it relatively easily. And it's also it's something new. People love things that are new and different. It keeps the government, the government doesn't know how to regulate it really that well or know who owns what. And so therefore, I suspect there's a lot of tax avoidance going on as well. So a lot of reasons why I think crypto is is here to stay. And I don't think governments can wipe it out. I think the best thing they can do is probably do a better job of regulating it and also creating their own digital currencies. Because while that's not the same as a cryptocurrency, there are people that would prefer to have a dip digital currency than paper currencies. Yeah. And um, do you own any crypto personally or through the family office? I, I don't. Um, I have said publicly that I have invested in companies through my family office that that service the, the industry. For example, I'm an investor in a company called Paxos, which is uh, that helps to service the industry. And so I think that the industry is not going up or down or around or it's not going to go away anytime soon. But I'm not an expert in figuring out whether crypto is going to go up or down. I think that the industry will be around. And so things that service the industry are probably what I've invested in that probably makes the most sense for me. Got it. And I want to switch a little bit now to kind of America geopolitics. Um, what do you think that most people um, don't understand about Washington and politicians? And then vice versa, what do you think Washington potentially doesn't understand about most people in the U.S.? Well, remember, Washington is a representative of the country. People get elected because they represent the country. Now, you can argue that the Senate is not fully representative because of the uh, nature. You only have two senators for each state. So Vermont has two senators, Montana has two senators, and California has two senators. So, but we have to recognize that the system we have permits that. But And there's gerrymandering for sure in the House of Representatives. Uh, and so maybe the country is not fully reflected in the Congress. But the fact that the country's uh, politicians, as represented in Congress, can't seem to agree on anything and don't want to be very bipartisan is really reflecting, I think, the mood in the country. The country is bitterly divided between those people that like the Democrats and those people that like the Republicans, those people that think that Donald Trump was fairly elected, and those people who don't think Donald Trump was elected. And there are many people who just feel that uh, the Democrats are big spenders and not really support strong and national defense. And there are many people who think the Republicans are overly jingoistic and and uh, not unduly really patriotic compared to, to what they really should be doing. So there's there's different views. I don't think it's going to get solved anytime soon. I think it's a mistake for people around the country to think that Washington doesn't represent the rest of the country. It represents an unfortunate country is split down the middle. Um, I think the um, uh, people in Washington, I don't think they fully understand how um, you know, people around the rest of the country know exactly what they're doing all the time. There are no secrets anymore. So every time you go to the bathroom, everybody in the country knows it. Every time you vote a certain way, people know it. So it's very difficult for people to try to hide things. And sometimes political figures or government figures or people in Washington who are not in government jobs try to hide things. And I think it's very difficult to do that anymore. Everybody knows everything. Everything's transparent. I've read that you said um, Abraham Lincoln was one of the greatest Americans to ever live. Uh, you know, if he were alive today, what do you think he would be doing to kind of lead the country into some more unity and progressing the, the country forward? Well, today he probably wouldn't have been elected because uh, it was homely looking. He uh, spoke uh, with a high pitched voice a bit. He uh, was, uh, you know, not a person that would be that telegenic in certain ways, um, maybe too tall to be attractive to many Americans in some respects. But then he had old fashioned clothing and he wasn't particularly the neatest guy in the world. So I don't know how he would do today, but let's suppose he cleaned up his acting and modernized himself. He basically brought a certain humility, certain sense of humor, certain perspective that I think was admirable. 
Um, he didn't brag about things. He didn't go around and say, you know, I just won the Civil War. I don't I deserve a lot of credit. Uh, he just would never say something like that. Uh, guess what? I just freed the slaves. Aren't I great? Uh, he would never say something like that. So I wish we had more humility or people of that kind of perspective uh, serving in office. And there are some for sure. Um, and then you've also said that, you know, at the time we had three million people in the country, the people we had in government service were George Washington, right, Thomas right. Jefferson. Today we have 330. And who? where is our George Washington? What do you think we need to do to incentivize the most talented people in the country to go into politics? Not saying that there aren't talented people in politics, but what do we do, need to do to incentivize well, the most talented? Well, there are talented people in government, but sometimes the system makes it very difficult for them to be effective. I'll give you an example of one of the challenges. Right now, uh, members of Congress make roughly $180,000 a year, the same salary they made 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. They don't want to increase their salary because they think it would be politically difficult to do. So you have 85 members of the House of Representatives living in their House offices because they can't afford to have an apartment in here as well, well one back in their district. So it's just we're, we're, we're basically asking people to serve who can't afford to really serve and therefore could be subject to things like uh, some type of corruption, though I don't know of any corruption, but they, they, you're asking people to really sacrifice an enormous amount financially for their children and so forth. Um, and that's not good. Also, you, you, you're going to increasingly get people who have wealth coming into government because they can afford to serve in government. So we don't want people or only wealthy people serving in government. So I think we should fix that. I think the other problem is in relating to money is that there's no limit to how much you can give into campaigns. And therefore, the, the, the money, the time spent raising money is so staggering and the amount of money needed for campaigns is so large that it's debilitating in many ways. I wish we could find a way to eliminate the enormous need for so much money and have members of Congress spending so much time on money. Yeah, it's certainly a hard problem to fix. Like one of the things I was thinking about as a thought experiment was why don't we just pay, you know, people in Congress, you know, half a million or a million dollars a year and incentivize the best people. But then, you know, obviously the optics and uh, doing that would be a big struggle. It's a challenge though. Like in some countries, Singapore, they pay uh, cabinet officers, what they would make in the private sector for that kind of responsibility. It can be a couple million dollars or so because they want to make sure they get good people. We we should do more to in, get good people in, in our country. Now, I, to my great delight, uh, we don't have corruption at the levels you see in other countries. Our federal judges basically are making the same kind of salary. They have hardly have salary increases. And you think about it, we don't have really any corruption I can think of in the federal judiciary system, but you've got people serving who are really, really modestly paid. Right. As it relates to the U.S., um, what do you think their role is as kind of one of the global superpowers in the world today versus what it may have been, you know, t uh, one, two, three decades ago? Well, after World War II, we were more than a half the world's GDP. And with Europe, we were two thirds of the world's GDP. Uh, that isn't going to happen in the future. So we're not as significant uh, economically as we once were. Militarily, we don't have the only, uh, we don't have a monopoly on nuclear weapons as we once did. Uh, we also don't have a population as big as other large financial uh, superpowers like China. So I think it's inevitable that we will not be as strong as we were after World War II or in the 1950s. I think given our pretty good-sized population, our wealth, our technology skills, our entrepreneurial spirit, and talented population, we'll always be a major factor in the world but I don't think we'll be as important as we were, you know, 50 years ago, just because of the rise of China, among other things. Is that a problem or is that just the inevitable of how um, societies rise and compete with each other? Well, 
it's a problem. Well, if you're an American, uh, it's always better to have more power, I suppose, and more influence. On the other hand, um, you know, if you're Chinese, it's, you know, wasn't fair in their view to kind of have them having a situation where they weren't uh, getting the benefits of the, their, their technology, their skills and so forth. We have to recognize that China's three times as big as we are population wise, and therefore it's difficult to compete uh, on a long term basis with somebody that's three times as as uh, large and also who has access to technology. Now, England ruled the world as a small population in a country in, 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 in a geographically remote area, the North Sea of, uh, of, of the world. Um, and they did it with better technology. They had 20,000 soldiers with, I guess, great technology running all of India. Um, and so with a small population, England did incredible things. They had better technology, greater wealth. Those kind of things are going to disappear. And more and more, I think, population size will be much more significant because almost everybody's going to have access to technology now. What do you think is the nature of the U.S.-China um, relationship over the coming decades in, in an ideal scenario as it relates to from a U.S. perspective? Well, today, uh, it's not really good. We've had a very, I would say, tense U.S.-China relationship on issues relating to human rights and with respect to the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, issues on the South China Sea and the military bases there, a real concern over Taiwan, and then issues relating to global cl climate change and uh you know, nuclear weaponry and things like that. So there's no doubt that the issue is now one where uh, China is a, a rival in so many different areas to us, and uh, it's competition. We're not as used to it as we probably will have to get used to doing. I think the relationship now is not as strong as I would like it to be. I think after Donald Trump, many people thought it would get better, but for lots of reasons I could explain, it's not gotten all that much better recently, and I suspect it'll take another year or two before we really see some thawing in the uh, in the in the relationship, what are those things like? What do you think it will take to kind of restore the relationship and improve it based on the prior administration? Well, I think Xi Jinping wants to have the Olympics behind him successfully done. I think he wants to technically be elected to his third term. He's authorized to be elected to a third term. He hasn't technically been elected to it yet, but he will at the next party congress. So I think once he has that behind him, I think he will feel a little more emboldened. Uh, to uh, try to get some negotiations done with the United States on certain things. I think the United States right now uh, is reluctant to reduce the tariffs that Donald Trump imposed because it would look like it's weak. And, and uh, we're also reluctant to, um, to um, kind of talk about uh, some of these issues in private. In other words, we've raised a red flag in, in, uh, in Taiwan. We, we talk a lot about Taiwan publicly and what we're going to do. And that is a red flag for the Chinese in some ways. So I think we need to lower the temperature a bit. I think when we get a U.S. ambassador in China, it will probably be helpful. We don't have one right now. Um, I, I think we have to lower the temperature a bit, but it's going to take a couple years. I know it's always tough to speculate, but do you think there's any risk to um, you know anything happening with the China-Taiwan issue? No one really knows for sure who's talking. Um, my own suspicion is that the Chinese will take the view that uh, Taiwan is part of China, but eventually it will come into China uh, over many, many years, even if there's no, quote, military effort to make it be the case. And now those economies are so linked that I think it'd be difficult for Taiwan to separate itself economically uh, and technologically from, uh, from China. But I, I think I, I don't really think it's likely that China would want the international uh, criticism that would come from a military invasion of Taiwan.
And, and now that the U.S. is um, out of Afghanistan and, you know, the culture seemingly in the U.S. seems to be let's stop getting into these overseas conflicts, what do you think the outcomes are in the Middle East? Well, the Middle East has been a subject of uh, instability for, you know, millennia. So we're not going to solve that problem. I think Afghanistan is uh, a case where we're there for 20 years. We got into nation building. That didn't work out. And now we're out. We hope that Afghanistan won't be a source of terrorists outside of Afghanistan. Uh, I think Iraq is stabilized a bit. I think the biggest challenge right now in the Middle East is Iran and dealing with its nuclear interests, which clearly are uh, geared towards weaponry. So I think if we could solve that problem, that would go a long way to solving some problems. And if we could get Iran to kind of uh, not be so involved in, in terrorist activities, that would be uh, a big plus as well. But I don't think you're going to see a lot of changes other than um, a lot of negotiations on the Iranian uh, nuclear matter. I don't think it's going to be resolved anytime soon. I don't think any big changes are going to happen in Afghanistan soon. And I hope there's no war in the Middle East anytime soon in between Israel and any of its neighbors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I've read you've done in Washington is kind of host these um dinners every month or, you know, five to 10 times a year. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that for people who may not know about that? Yes. Um, I thought it'd be a good idea to have members of Congress learn more about American history. So I started a program about five years ago that I would host at the Library of Congress with the Librarian of Congress, where I would get a great historian, David McCullough, Doug Brinkley, Michael Beschloss, John Meacham, come in and I would interview them about one of their latest books, I would host a reception for members where they could have some drinks and talk with each other and see historic documents relating to the author's work, then go down and have a nice dinner where I ask people to sit with people from the opposite party in the opposite house, which they rarely do. And there's no press there, so nobody can see them doing this. And then I would do an interview for about 45 minutes. And the members of Congress can ask questions for about 15 or 20 minutes. And people then can have some after dinner drinks if they want. Members of Congress seem to really like it. They, it's educational. It's apolitical. Um, they can walk the Library of Congress from underground uh, tunnels, and so it's easy for them to get there. So we will resume this in February. Uh, because of COVID, we had to stop for a year or so. But members of Congress really like it, and I think it's an enjoyable thing for them. Has this been a way to get members of Congress to you know, work a little bit more closely with each other, have productive dialogues? It, it, it can't hurt. Many members like it. And I, this is what I mean. Uh, there used to be uh, things called congressional hearings and subcommittee markups and committee markups. That's gone by the wayside. Largely, things are just now done in the, in the uh, leadership offices. As a result, many members don't work as closely with each other as they used to. And most importantly, they don't have conference committees anymore because everything is done in the leadership. So you used to have members of the Senate, members of the House meeting in conference committees. That doesn't happen as much. Because of the, of the publicity on congressional delegations going abroad on these so-called uh, Codell trips, uh, you don't have them anymore because of the criticism of these junkets. And as a result, members don't bond on these trips anymore. Uh, many members in the House and the Senate don't know each other because they don't have conference committees. And very rarely do Democrats or Republicans socialize anymore. So this is a chance for them to do that under the radar, and they seem to like it. And then I know you um, kind of uh, do the David Rubenstein show, which uh, I think was started in maybe 2016 or so. Most private equity people are you know, more private and, and not so public. I'm just curious kind of what prompted you to do the show um, and have these conversations publicly with people. Well, I became the president of the Economic Club of Washington about a dozen years ago, and I was just supposed to get speakers to come in and, and um, let them speak. And then I would have some questions from the members and I would read the questions to the, to the uh, speaker. It turned out that the business people coming in were relatively boring, 
and the questions coming from the members were not so exciting. So I would stand there and ask questions, pretending I was reading from the members, but I was making them up. And I would try to use some humor to liven the situation up. People seemed to like it. So I said, well, I just go to interviews and I try to have some humor in my interviews. And now doing it for 10 years or so. And about five or six years ago, Bloomberg TV saw it and said, why don't you just take these interviews and kind of put them on television? So I said, okay, I can do it. I enjoy it. That's fun. And I get to meet interesting people and I get to prepare for them. And therefore I get to read a lot of interesting things. So I, then, then it led to another show on, um, I have four shows now. I think one of them is the peer to peer. Another one will be resuming again um, in the near future. It's about investing also on Bloomberg with the great investors and then another one is uh, one on history that I do with the New York Historical Society, and it's on PBS, and it's it's about history and American history. And then I have a new series I'm shooting on PB, with PBS, so come on the air next year, about certain American iconic things like the American bald eagle, the resolute desk, the Statue of Liberty, and we go through a long history uh, of, of those kind of things with some interviews. Got it. I, I enjoy it. I mean, each private equity person has its own interest. I don't play golf. I don't uh, ski. I don't have a lot of other great outside interest. So this is my version of skiing or playing golf, I guess. Yeah. And um, as you mentioned, you know, you've been on the board um, of a variety of things, Economic Club of Washington, so on and so forth. Do you advise kind of, let's say, younger private equity managers to join groups such as YPO or similar organizations? Or do these things take time away from running and growing the business? And it's something they should focus on maybe later in their career? I think they should do something. I have overdone it a bit. I own so many of them, but um, I enjoy them. And I'm now in a situation where I can, I can do it. I'm not running the firm day to day. But um, I would recommend everybody find one or two outside interests that they think is interesting intellectually and they think they might be contributing to society by being involved with it. And you can use it not only to give back to society, but the networking is very good. If you just sit in your office all day, you're not going to meet a lot of people. And you never know who's going to bring you an idea, a contact, or friendship, or relationship. So, so many of the relationships that I have came about uh, by serendipity. Somebody introduced me to somebody, and the relationship took off. Or I met somebody in a a meeting I didn't expect to meet, and became a good relationship. So, I encourage people to do it. You can't meet too many people. And on these, um, you know, interviews that you've done in the various shows, or even in some of the, um, you know, more private settings that where you've been on the boards and things like that, uh, we had this one question from the Twitter audience from Dr. Julie Gerner, which was, has there been any tips, advice, or habits that you've incorporated into your own life over the years as a result of interviewing others? Well, I guess from interviewing others, I've gotten the idea that it's good to be prepared for the interview. So I do prepare for them. I try to read as much as possible so I can give an intellectual conversation that's, that's you know, useful to them and useful to the audience. I also admire some people that have overcome adversity and they heard some, you know, stories about how people overcame hurdles in their life. And I've maybe taken some signals from that about how to overcome diversity, adversity. So, uh, you know, I, I learn from every interview I do and you know, I, I, what I'm really trying to do is not learn myself, though it's a byproduct, is to have other people learn. You know, if, if nobody's watching the interviews, then what good is it doing? So I'm really trying to get other people to watch them. And to my surprise, um, I go around the world now, more and more people come up to me and they want a selfie because they've seen me on, on to television. Many of the people have no idea that I've been 30 years in the private equity world or that I'm in doing other things. They just see me on TV. They think I'm a TV host. 
Yeah, it's funny. Uh, when I asked, uh, you know, people on Twitter, I'm interviewing David Rubenstein this week, what questions would you have? I think two people sent selfies with you. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and- <laughs> I, I am amazed. I, and it's embarrassing. Sometimes I'll be walking with my children who aren't that impressed with me, and somebody will come and ask for a selfie, and they kind of roll their eyes. Why would you want a selfie with my father? He's not that impressive. Uh, And from what it's worth in the interviews, uh, I've learned quite a bit. Two things are notable that stand out, which was when uh, Bezos said, I think he doesn't do um, uh, like major decisions after 10, like his morning is pretty protected and kind of, uh, you know, he allows himself time. Uh, So that kind of shifted me to do meetings in the afternoon. And then uh, the Masayoshi son interview of him talking about, you know, a billion dollars a minute of raising that fund was very inspiring. Right. Yeah, you know, look, getting uh, prominent people to open up on these interviews is always challenging. As you know, getting the guest is half the, the, the chore in, in interviewing. Um, interviewing is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, for most of organized history, there weren't interviews. So we don't have interviews of William Shakespeare or, or George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Um, I've thought about doing a book where I would interview George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and kind of having an expert play Lincoln or Washington. They would know the answers that they would probably give if they were asked the kind of questions I would ask. So I'm trying to figure out whether there'd be an audience for that kind of book. I don't know. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, I read that uh, one of the people you would like to interview is uh, Xi Jinping. I'm just curious, kind of, what are the uh, things you would want to learn from him? I have met with him. I I chaired a board in China and one time as the chair of the board, we had a meeting with Xi Jinping and I just me and Xi Jinping doing the talking, which was a little intimidating. but of course, he's not going to answer questions in quite the way that a Western person would. Um, so I, I don't know that an interview with Xi Jinping would honestly be that revealing. It would be interesting that you could get an interview and no doubt it'd get a lot of attention. But I don't know that you would get answers that are going to be quite as frank um, as you might get in from an interviewing an American politician. If you did. Yeah, if you did have kind of one-on-one time with him, let's just say, what would be some of the... Uh, questions you'd ask or things you'd want to learn? Well, how can we improve the U.S.-China relationship? Um, Why do you want to serve more than the fairly standard 10 years? Are you enjoying the job you have? Uh, What is your goal for China five years from now, 10 years from now? Um, How do you uh, think you can learn more from the West? And what do you think the West can learn from you? What do you think we can learn from, from China and the Eastern world? Well, I think we can learn from China... Um, how to maybe get government to work a little more efficiently. Um, obviously, they have a different system, but it, they, they can get things done a little more quickly than we can. They also have more patience than we do and have longer term perspectives than we do. And I think we could learn a fair bit there. But also, uh, you know, they've had some miracles there. They've taken 600 million people out of poverty since China opened up uh, to, to, to Western society. We have a lot of poverty in our country still, and we, we could do a better job of eliminating our poverty. As we kind of wrap up here, just a handful of questions, somewhat unrelated to each other, but just a way we like to kind of, uh, you know, finalize the interview. So uh, the first is, um, you know, what books do you most commonly gift to others? Well, I would generally, when I give books to people, it's generally books that I've written because, um, you know, people seem to like to have autographed copies of books that you've written. But when I'm giving other people's books, it's generally books about biography or history or things that I think that people should read more about learn more about. 
Are there any particular uh, biographies or history books that you seem to gift to people more than other biographies or history well, books? I admire, I think, a book by Peter Baker um, on uh, Jim Baker, who was in our firm for a while. It was a really great biography. Um, um, I would say uh, uh, Annette Gordon-Reed's book on the Hemings of Monticello is a great book on Thomas Jefferson. Uh, John Meacham's books are all wonderful. I, I really like uh, the books written by David McCullough very readable. And, and I guess uh, the great literary style and great history work done by um, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, maybe her book on rivals, um, you know, Team of Rivals is one of the great history books in recent, you know, years. I, I admire that book and read it several times. The Monticello one was interesting. That was the one about um, Thomas Jefferson's affairs, I believe, right? Yes. Yeah, that was fascinating. It kind of proved decisively, in my view, that Thomas Jefferson did father uh, probably six children with Sally Hemings, which was not uncommon for slave owners to um, have relationships that were intimate with the slaves who probably couldn't control the, the nature of that uh, situation. Yep. Um, what purchase or purchases of less than $1,000 have most positively impacted your life? Well, uh, probably uh, buying an iPhone. I mean, I was probably a last adopter to an iPhone and I don't know what that could probably cost less than a thousand dollars, but as you know, you've got an encyclopedia, you've got, you know, music, you got everything you need right here. So uh, probably that's the best $1,000 purchase. And then are there, what's kind of some of the best investments, not only of money, but kind of time energy uh, that you've spent and has paid off well for you? Well, the best investment anybody can make is uh, with their children, putting time with their children. So I always wish that every parent does, they put more time in, but my children are now all in the private equity world pursuing what I've called the highest calling of mankind. So I either did something right or something wrong, depending on your point of view. Um, I would say uh, in terms of financial investments, uh, investing money in, in my Carlisle funds have done well and I put money in my family offices. They've done well. But in the end, um, you know, I, I'm looking for things that are going to have transformative impact on the world. And so some of the investments I made were really good. In that way, some of them, uh, you know, weren't as, as significant as I thought. On parenting, I think that, um, you know, as people, um, you know, let's say become more successful and things like that, one of their biggest worries becomes, uh, how do I not raise spoiled kids, make them understand the importance of a dollar and, you know, grow up to be useful citizens? How have you kind of accomplished raising good children? Well, as you probably have heard me say before, raising children is the most difficult thing in the world to do. Raising children you know, in a way that makes them happy, healthy, successful, not easy. Everybody has a chance at it who has children. And many people don't make it. Raising children when you have a lot of money is much more complicated because you, you can easily spoil them. And we all know people who have grown up in very wealthy settings and have become, uh, let's say, less functional citizens than they should have been. So um, it's not easy. In my case, I wouldn't say that I'm perfect by a long shot, uh, but I would say that I've tried to be a role model for my children so they can see what I'm doing and try to see that I'm giving back to society and I'm working hard. I'm not doing things that are immoral. And um, hopefully, you know, they, they will listen to some of the things I say, but watch what I do. But again, I'm not a perfect person, so I make mistakes and they probably can point those out to me better than anybody else. Yeah. And um, just the last two questions as we kind of wrap up here. Um, if you were starting your career again, career again today, you know, in 2021 and you were graduating college, um, let's say you didn't go to law school, 
Uh, where do you think you would be going into, you know, would it be government, law, private equity, tech, crypto? Uh, where would you kind of, where would your curiosities be where well, you spend probably your time? I would do what a lot of people do is I may start my own company. If you can start your own company in your 20s and you have the energy and, and drive in your 20s, you can, by the time you're 30, you can see a success come of it. Is it in crypto or some other type of currency? I don't, or some other type of uh, uh, new, new product. I probably would try something like that. I probably would start a new company. Probably wouldn't have started a private equity firm right out of college. I didn't know much about investing then. It wouldn't probably have the challenge or excitement of building your own company. Being a startup is much more challenging and exciting, I think. Great. And then lastly, um, I know I've been grilling you now for 70 minutes or so. Uh, so I'll put you back in your more typical chair and ask you if you have a question for me. Yes. So um, why do you have that beard? Uh, <laughs> interesting. I've never been asked that. Um, I've been clean shaven up until I think I was, uh, out of the W2 employee world. And I think growing the beard for me, you know, maybe it wasn't, uh, as traditional like now it, maybe it is, but I think it was just kind of a way for me to say, this is my, uh, calling to not go back and be a W2 employee. Although maybe something like a tattoo on my hand would have been a little bit more permanent. All right. And another question is, have you read all those books behind you? No, I call this my anti-library, where every time I look at it, uh, I think was coined by Nassim Taleb, uh, anti-library, where I look at it and I say, I have so much more to learn. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. David, thank you. You've been very generous. Um, thanks so much for being here and hope we get to do it again soon. Okay. My pleasure. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye.